We've been going through the book of Mark uh, every Sunday, and uh, this Sunday we're going to be wrapping up chapter 4. This is the first time that you're using a Bible. The big numbers are the chapter numbers, and the little numbers are the verse numbers. It's Mark 4, 35 through 41. Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. Big numbers are chapter numbers. The little numbers are the verse numbers. And it says this. On that day, when evening had come, he told them, let's cross over to the other side of the sea. So he left the crowd and took him along since he was in the boat. And other boats were with him. A great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking over the boat, so that the boat was already being swamped. He was in the stern, sleeping on the cushion. So they woke him up and said to him, Teacher, don't you care that we're going to die? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, Silence, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked one another, Who then is this? Even the wind and the sea obey him. Let's pray. We pray this morning that as we hear from your word that you will help us to focus, turn our ears to be attentive to your word, help us to understand it, and to trust you in the midst of of chaos and storms that may happen in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri, which is in uh, Tornado Alley. So we had thunderstorms almost every other week. I can think of two stories that come to mind. One was that as a kid, whenever thunderstorms would come and lightning would flash and, and rain would pour, I would sprint to my parents' bedroom and dive under the covers uh, so that I could cuddle with my parents. So I was so terrified as, as I would hear thunder crash and, and lightning flash before my eyes. I felt safer in, in my parents' arms. The other memory that comes to mind is when uh, I, I got caught cheating on my piano homework. And my mom saw me. And what I felt in that moment was probably similar to that sound. Uh, I felt fear <laughs> get into my heart. You know, and, and these two stories are kind of representative to what it was like to be with my parents. On one hand, I felt safe. On the other side, I felt fear, right, to obey them, to make sure that I followed them. And, and it's really the same awe and reverence that I had of my parents that caused both results. On one hand, it caused me to go to my parents when trials arise. On the other side, to, to fear what they would do in, in terms of disciplining me if I disobeyed them. It caused me to, to draw closer to them. And in this story, we see an example of the disciples as they're interacting with Jesus, feeling both of those same emotions. On one hand, fearing trials. On the other hand, fearing the Lord. And, and what the Lord wants us to do this morning is to fear Christ, to fear Him, the Creator of creation. To fear Christ, the creator of creation. Three points for us this morning. Number one, the great storm. We're going to look at the great storm. Number two, 
we're going to look at the great calm. The great calm. And number three, we'll look at the great fear. So we'll look at the great storm, the great calm, and then the great fear. Let's look at point number one, the great storm. Read with me from verse 35. It says, On that day when evening had come, he told them, Let's cross over to the other side of the sea. So he left the crowd and took him along since he was in the boat. And other boats were with him. A great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking over the boat, so that the boat was already being swamped. So the same day that Jesus gave the parable of the sower, the lamp, and the seeds, Jesus decides to cross over to the other side of the sea. The disciples get in the boat, and, and other boats come alongside him for the ride, and they begin to cross over the sea. As they do, a great storm arises. It comes, and, and the storm is so great that the waves are breaking over into the boat, and the boat is getting swamped or kind of filling up with water. So they just finished a successful day of ministry. They're supposed to be crossing the sea with their Savior. Instead, they begin slowly sinking into the sea. For those of us that are kind of familiar with this story, you might be tempted to gloss over the sheer magnitude of the situation. For one, they, the disciples had absolutely no control over the storm. The disciples couldn't politely ask the storm to leave. It wasn't really optimal timing for them. They couldn't choose the timing based on their own convenience. The storm's arrival was completely unexpected and unable to be controlled. They couldn't stop the storm. The only thing that they could do was try to manage their own survival. Survival. Not, not only did they not have control over the storm, the, the disciples understood that when it came to moments like these, when, when storms arose like this, the, every decision that they would make would be the difference between life and death. Most of our lives are pretty separate from risk. We don't spend our time wondering whether or not we're going to make it to the end of the day. Often the most risky venture we go through is kind of the breath that we hold as our plane kind of lands onto the runway. But these storms were legitimately the difference between life and death. Every choice mattered. And unfortunately for the disciples, despite their best efforts, the storm was still raging. The waves crashed and the boat was beginning to sink. And so they looked for Jesus, try to figure out where their Savior is. And, and where was Jesus during this time? Jesus was taking a nap. You see that in verse 38. He was in the stern, sleeping on the cushion. So he woke him up and said to him, Teacher, don't you care that we're going to die? Why was Jesus sleeping here? Many a pastor speculated about why Jesus would be asleep during the storm. Some have attributed it to a strategic slumber, as though Jesus kind of conjured up the storm and, and was sleeping in order to test the disciples' faithfulness. This could be the case, but there's nothing really in the passage that would indicate that. I've, I've put a lot of thought into this. And after extensive research, I've concluded that the reason why Jesus was asleep was because he was tired. Yeah, uh, They don't head out until the evening. He'd been teaching for hours, and, and Jesus, in his humanity, falls asleep. Sometimes we confuse being fully God and fully man with Jesus being a superman. And he wasn't. 
He was a normal human being. He felt the fullness of true humanity, just like you and I. And after a long day of work, after nonstop teaching, Jesus experienced the exhaustion of a full day's work, gets into the boat, and gravity defeats his eyelids. He, he falls asleep. He, he, he begins to rest. His sleep, however, triggers the disciples' shock. The disciples see Jesus sleeping, and their panic then turns into frustration. They're outside fighting for their lives. And meanwhile, Jesus is asleep. That's not how it's supposed to be. As frustration begins to boil over, the, the words spill out of their mouth. Don't you care that we're going to die? Don't you care? The disciples' fear reveals their heart. It's not just that the storm caused them to fear for their life. The storm didn't just threaten their life. It revealed their doubt. The disciples are showing with their questions to Jesus that they didn't actually trust him. In fact, they, they doubt whether Jesus truly cared for him. Because if Jesus really cared, where was he? Why wasn't he out with the disciples, leading by example and helping them weather the storm? Have you ever wondered whether Jesus cares for you? Life's hard. Storms surge unannounced. A phone call comes with tragic news. A doctor's appointment brings unexpected results. Letters come informing you of heartbreak. Layoffs leave you strapped. Rejection, pain, and uncertainty can swell and overwhelm us. And in those moments... Where is God? Maybe God feels distant to you. I mean, we've all heard the phrase, God helps those who help themselves. So, so you think maybe God is kind of there to help you do better, but when life really gets hard, God's nowhere to be found. And the only person that you could really rely on is yourself. So you chin up, you pull yourself up by the, your bootstraps, and you face the storm head on. Maybe you think God's judgmental, that, that he's happy to, to reward us when you're doing good stuff, but when you do bad, that's when he turns into a vindictive disciplinarian. So when storms come, it must be because you did something wrong or because God's mad at you about something. So when trials come, you start to do an autopsy of your own life to figure out where you messed up so that hopefully you can clean up your mess and God would be nice to you again and give you a second chance. The problem with all of these different perspectives is that they move from questioning God's purposes to questioning God's goodness. They move from questioning God's purposes to questioning his goodness. Is God really good? Either because if he really cared, then maybe God would do something. Either he doesn't care or he can't help. Either way, there's no hope. So going to God is about as helpful as a man is sleeping on a cushion. When storms come, they reveal what you truly believe about God. So how does Jesus respond to our exasperated accusation? You see it in our second point there, the great calm. The great calm. Uh, if you want to stop the feedback, you just need to mute all the other mics. Just letting you know now. So if you just mute all the other mics, that 
that will get rid of all the feedback or maybe lower the volume, but we'll, we'll keep working on it. Verse 39, he got up, rebuked the wind and said to the sea, silence, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. Jesus gets up and rebukes the wind. He says, silence, be still. And immediately the storm stops. The sea becomes still. Because Jesus does what only God can do. He silences the storm. See, humans, we can adapt. We can try to predict. But none of us can control the weather. Remember a couple months ago when Hurricane Hillary was storming up California? We're all trying to brace ourselves for the blast. We, we even had a shorter service and sent everyone home. Uh, because we were afraid that people were going to get hurt. And all Artesia got was a little trickle. Meanwhile, Victorville absolutely flooded. Now, I don't think that God hates Victorville more than Artesia, though I certainly hate Victorville more than Artesia. I don't think there's anything that this city did in particular to earn a drizzle instead of a downpour. But the point is that none of us had any control. We couldn't do anything to stop the storm. Jesus, however, gets up and with three words, controls creation. In fact, the word there that, that, that Mark uses is that he rebukes the wind. It's not just that he has the ability to stop the storm from happening. It's that he has authority over creation. He has authority over the storm. The way that my mom would glare at me and and inhale to signal to me that I need to fix up my behavior. Jesus is able to exert his authority over the storm. Because Jesus is not just fully human, but fully God. He's not just creation, he's also the creator. See, what separates Jesus isn't just his ability to heal the sick. The apostles do that. What, what separates Jesus isn't speaking God's truth into the world. The prophets did that. What makes Jesus singular, what makes him separate from the rest of creation, is that Jesus is the creator. He is the creator. John 1 says that in the beginning was a word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and all things were created through him. And apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's what we believe about Jesus, that he took on flesh and dwelt among us. And that person's name is Jesus. And the reason why Jesus can calm the seas is because he is God. This idea that, that Jesus is truly God and truly man is called the hypostatic union. That's like an SAT theology word, the hypostatic union, that that he's truly God and truly man. And it's critical for us to understand this. The Bible teaches that Jesus is both fully God and fully man in one person. This is how uh, Gregory of Nazianzus explains both Jesus' humanity and his divinity. It says, as man, he was baptized, but he absolved sins as God. He hungered, yet he fed thousands. He thirsted, yet he exclaimed, Whosoever thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He was tired, yet he is the rest of the weary and the burden. He was overcome by heavy sleep, yet he goes lightly over the sea, rebukes winds, 
and relieves the drowning Peter. He is weakened, wounded, yet he cures every disease and every weakness. He is brought up to the tree and nailed to it, yet by the tree of life he restores us. He surrenders his life, yet he has power to take it again. He dies, but he vivifies and by death destroys death. He's buried, yet he rises again. He goes down to Hades, yet he leads souls up, ascends to heaven, and will come to judge the quick and the dead. Your Savior is one that sleeps and saves. He is both man and he's God. The Bible teaches both. In fact, who Jesus is is inherently tied to what Jesus does. He can die in the place of sinful humanity because he's a man. But he could take the wrath of God, die, and rise from the dead because he's God. When Jesus saves, God saves. The Lord saves. And and this idea isn't just some new idea that comes up in the New Testament. Jesus wasn't some surprise. In fact, God had been planning this since long ago. In fact, Jesus going out and calming the seas fulfills a prophecy that we see all the way back in Psalm 107, verses 23 through 30. So if you have a Bible, go and flip back there to Psalm 107. Psalm 107, verses 23 through 30. This is a a psalm of thanksgiving for God's deliverance. And notice the way that they praise the Lord for what he's done in verse 23 to 30. This is what, what the psalm says. It says, Others went to sea in ships, conducting trade in vast water. They saw the Lord's works, his wondrous works in the deep. He spoke and raised a stormy wind that stirred up the waves of the sea. And rising up to the sky, sinking down to the depths, their courage melting away in anguish. They reeled and staggered like a drunkard, and all their skill was useless. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper. And the waves of the sea were hushed. They rejoiced when the waves grew quiet. Then he guided them to the harbor they longed for. See, when when Jesus stands up and he calms the sea, he isn't just performing a cool miracle. He is displaying his glorious, divine, divine fulfillment of this Old Testament promise that the Lord would show his wondrous works in the deep. That that these men in these boats would be brought to the end of themselves. That all that they would be left with is their own terror. And they would cry out to the Lord and God would come and with a whisper, silence the sea. Make the storm get still. See, the great storm submits to the Lord's command. The sleeping Savior has the authority to silence the storm and still the sea. And result is a great calm. But Jesus isn't done here in the story. He then turns his attention to his disciples, which brings us to point number three, the great fear. The great fear. Verse 40. Then Jesus said to them, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? Jesus turns his attention to his disciples and he asks why they were afraid. 
See, Jesus doesn't just see that, that they were afraid of what was going to happen to them. He, he goes deeper than that. He identifies their primary problem. It's not just that they were afraid. It's that they didn't have any faith. They, they didn't believe that Jesus was actually going to save them. They didn't trust the Lord. In fact, they were overwhelmed with fear, and that fear evolved into faithlessness. They didn't just fear the storm. They questioned whether or not God was truly good, whether he was going to care for them. Trials come to all of us. And trials are difficult, but they're not only difficult. Our trials are also tests. They reveal where our hearts truly are. What are you afraid of? What keeps you up at night? When you have free time to think, where does your mind drift off to? Whatever those fears are, they reveal where your heart is. Whether it's health, whether it's wealth, whether it's your loved ones, ambition, whatever you value creates photo negatives of concern in our hearts. And some of those concerns are appropriate. It's okay to have worries and to make sure that we address certain concerns that we have in our lives. We want to be on the lookout for potential dangers and be responsible and be able to plan ahead. But when those concerns start to dominate your life, when they start to control what we think about, and our concerns evolve into anxious fears, then it's easy for those fears to become idols in our hearts. If you're anxious this morning about anything, maybe one reason why God has allowed this trial in your life is to expose where your heart is. To expose where your heart is. It doesn't mean that the issue is unimportant, but it may be taking a prominent place in your heart. That's worth thinking about. Worth talking about with a friend or with a pastor about your fears. To, to take them out and to take time to examine them. See, when, when fears crawl into our heart, they fill the space and they crowd out faith in God. We stop believing that God is trustworthy. We begin to doubt his goodness. And the solution isn't to just avoid difficult situations. Those difficult situations are going to find you. But when difficult trials come, we need to use them as opportunities to grow our faith. It's opportunities to grow our faith. Second Timothy 3.12 says that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's part of the job. As storms are not exceptions to the Christian life. They're to be expected. And God doesn't promise to remove you from storms altogether. He does, however, promise to deliver us from all trouble in his time. In the Chronicles of Narnia, Susan asks Aslan the uh, asks whether or not Aslan the lion is safe. And Mr. Beaver responds, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's a king, I tell you. God might not always be safe to us. He's not going to prevent us from experiencing pain or suffering in this world. But God is good. And knowing that makes all the difference. God wants us to weather the storm, not by our own strength, but by our faith in Jesus. And you can see the effect of Christ in the disciples there in verse 41. And the disciples were terrified. And they asked one another, who then is this 
even the wind and the sea obey him. The disciples end up more afraid in the calm than they were in the storm. They have a great fear or, or terror. But now they're not fearing the storm anymore. They're fearing the one who commanded the winds and the seas. And it's that kind of fear that's actually a good fear. A good thing. In fact, that's exactly what God wants from us. Jesus says in Matthew 10, 28, Don't fear those who kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Did you know that the Bible talks about the fear of the Lord as a good thing? Proverbs says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. In fact, in Exodus 20, there's a parallel kind of story that goes on. This is after God leads the Israelites out of Egypt through the Red Sea. And now as they begin to wander through the wilderness, they come to Mount Sinai. And God's presence descends on the mountain. And, and this is what Exodus 20 says. It says, quote, All the people witnessed the thunder and lightning, the sound of the ram's horn, and the mountain surrounded by smoke. And when people saw it, they trembled. And stood at a distance. And the Israelites said, You speak to us, and we will listen, they said to Moses. But don't let God speak to us, or we're going to die. And Moses responded to the people, Don't be afraid, for God has come to test you, so that you will fear him and will not sin. Super interesting what Moses says there. Don't be afraid. Instead, fear the Lord. Don't be afraid. Fear the Lord. There's a difference between being afraid of God and fearing the Lord. Being, of, being afraid causes us to clutch our idols and try to find little pockets of safety to rely on ourselves instead of the Lord. Fearing the Lord, however, drives us toward God, not away from Him. It kills our idols and increases our trust in the Lord. Like a child clinging to their parent during a thunderstorm. The fear of the Lord pulls us closer to the Father. See, the disciples are not afraid of the storm anymore. If anything, the storm has only increased the fear of Jesus. Because the seas had to submit to the Savior. You know, the, the sea or, or the waters in the Bible symbolize more than just kind of a body of water or a place where you go for vacation. The waters or the seas actually symbolize death. They symbolize death. And in Genesis 1, before God creates, his spirit hovers over the waters. Hovers over the waters. And in, later in, in Genesis, when Noah survives the flood, the, the earth is destroyed by getting filled with water. And the idea is that God is undoing creation. When you read in the prophets and in the Psalms, whenever God wanted to describe his judgment and his destruction of evil, you see him use water imagery, like a flood taking over all that was there before. See, this, the seas are more than just a place where you could theoretically drown. It actually represented death itself. And when Jesus speaks and he stills the storm, death loses its sting. See, all of us are going to die. 
All of us have been cursed by the effects of sin in our life. We've all disobeyed the Lord. What are you going to do when you face the waves of death? If you're in Christ, you never need to ask the question, don't you care that we're going to die? Because the Lord, Jesus, came. Not not only does he silence the seas with his words, he submerged himself into death by dying the death that, that we deserved on the cross, by bearing eternal punishment on the cross, dying a, a sinner's death, and three days later he emerged from the seas of death victorious over sin and darkness. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But, but thanks be to our God gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you're not a Christian, that's the good news for you this morning that you don't have to fear death. In fact, you could face the waves of death with absolute confidence and know that you will make it to the golden shores of heaven itself because Christ came and stilled the seas. Turn from your sin and trust in Jesus and you'll find the peace and hope that you desperately need. See, for the disciples there, fear of death itself was swallowed up in victory. Don't you care that we're going to die became who is this? Because when we fear the Lord, when you actually truly believe him and fear him, then you have nothing else to fear. We can give thanks to the Lord for his faithful love and his wondrous works over all humanity. And we could sing like Christians have sung for for centuries. Be still, my soul. Your God will undertake to guide the future as he has the past. Your hope, your confidence, let nothing shake. All now mysterious will be bright at last. Be still, my soul. The waves and winds still know the voice who ruled while he dwelt below. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to trust you when storms come, to to fear the Lord more than anything else that this world could possibly throw at us. But Lord, we know that when trials come, we're weak. So we need your help. So we ask that your spirit would help us. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.